adults with low literacy skills are three times more likely to be in poverty, four times more likely to have poor health, and eight times more likely to be incarcerated. We, the educators, want to help you improve those numbers. How? Through this podcast. We, the educators, believe in the importance of integrity, social justice, domestic literacy, common understanding, overall well-being, and the blessings of opportunity for all people. And we establish this podcast as a podcast of educators, by educators, and for educators. All right, folks. Hello and welcome to this episode of the We the Educators podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Earl Breon, and my co-host, as always, is Raymond Lordani. Ramo, I know you've got a topic that you want to share with folks today, uh, but before we get into that, let's go ahead and get our uh, commercial uh, rolling from our great sponsors over at Uqualio. Hey, educator, are you looking for a platform to help you reach more people? Well, check out our show sponsor, Uqualio. Uqualio is a video e-learning platform that makes it easy and affordable for anyone to create and distribute highly effective video e-learning through one or more personalized channels, whether for private or public purposes. It's as easy as YouTube, but with Uqualio, you know who saw your video and understood the content. It comes complete with in-platform communication and analytics, built-in quizzes and tests, certifications, and more. And the best part, Uqualio makes it fun and rewarding to learn and easy to remember. Check them out at Uqualio.com. And if you decide to try their services, visit Uqualio.com slash WTE for We The Educators for 50% off your first three months of service. Hey, and if you're a learner, no worries. Uqualio is designed for you to access all of this wonderful content. Just visit uqualio.com slash directory to get started learning. All right. Again, thank you, Uqualio, for uh, for being sponsors. We really appreciate everything you do for Seabury and, and supporting this podcast. Uh, so, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, Ramo has some outstanding information he's going to share with us today. You're probably not going to hear a whole heck of a lot from me, maybe just asking some uh, questions, kind of clarifying as the layman of the group here, if you will. Uh, but uh, strap in. This is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Ramo, take it away, buddy. What, what is it you want to talk about today? Well, first thing, if this triggers you, anybody, please feel open to contact us and may, we can have a conversation in a podcast. That would be wonderful, Earl, because there's an elephant in the room and nobody's looking at him. Before you get into that, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I've been meaning to mention on here. And this will be a great way to maybe get some interaction on here. Uh, so folks who are familiar with the show know that we are hosted on Anchor. And one of the great things that Anchor allows us to do is uh, when you go to our site, uh, even on like the different show note links and all that, you'll see a link on there uh, to send us a message. If you click on that message link, it'll take you to a little web app or whatever you want to call it online where you can actually record your voice, send it to us, and then we can pull that audio in and respond directly to your voice on the show. 
So as Ramo is saying, if anything he says today, you're an educator, you've got some deeply held beliefs about this, you're a learner with some beliefs, you want to ask some questions, use that messaging thing there and we'll come back and circle around and we'll use your audio to answer your questions in future episodes. So make use of that. All right, Ramo, carry it away, man. All right, Earl, but I also want to add, if you're a funding source, a funding agency, if you're a policymaker, an elected official, uh, an administrator and an adult education group, you know, any of those and more, please feel open to contact us, uh, whether you agree with us or not, or me, whether you agree with me or not. We want to have this conversation. As I uh, had heard on a video, the first step to addressing any problem or any issue is to first recognize that there is one. All right. So Earl, let's get into this. Let me just start off by saying, in this country, we have close to 150 million people who have low literacy skills, who struggle, adults that is, that struggle and so forth. So I want to couch this in some numbers that are proudly propagated by a couple of our professional organizations. So everyone is proud of the fact that we have one and a half million or so adults in adult basic education and other education programs, right? But here's the thing. Here's the reality of it. Over 50 million adults suffer from low reading skills. Now, out of one and a half million that are in the program, that equates to 3% of the adults are actually in programs. There are over 75 million adults who suffer from low numeracy skills. And again, out of the whole one and a half million or so that are in programs, that equates to only 2%. Overall, again, 150 million or about a one-third struggle to complete basic forms, to understand what we would say 21st century literacy, communication skills, uh, being culturally understanding, being able to be proactive with your health care. Remember what we always say, out of their own numbers, the agency's own numbers, adults with low literacy skills are tw twice as likely to be in poverty. They're three times as likely to be unemployed. They're four times as likely to suffer from poor or bad health, and they're eight times as likely to be incarcerated. Education and adult community literacy are keys to strengthening this country, but yet no one is talking about this, Earl. No one. And though we have some who are starting a conversation recently about this whole culturally responsive teaching, do they really support it? Here's the thing. 22 years ago, there was a, a hearing before the United States Congress, the 106th Congress, House of Representatives, second session, number 127 in 2000, called The Importance of Literacy. Bill Goodling, the congressman from Pennsylvania, says, and this is in the records, this is on the, in the hearing notes, 
He says, I do not know what took us so long to understand that if you do not deal with the entire family, you do not break the cycle. And that cycle was intergenerational uh, uh, cycles of poverty and illiteracy. He says, we must have been asleep somewhere. I am not sure. 22 years ago, Earl. Now, in response to the... um, Committee on Early Childhood Pedagogy, Commission on Behavioral and Social Sciences and Education out of the National Research Council. Back in 2000, the recommendation 17 was this. They need research to provide more helpful structures, curricula, and methods for children at high risk of educational difficulties, including those from low-income homes and communities. Now, one thing... If you look at our website, Seabreeze website, and our social media sites, LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as our Twitter account, we have shown many, many times, just here in the Mon Valley of the Pittsburgh area alone, we have over 19 communities in poverty and suffering from low adult literacy. We have all their associated school districts that are operating in the lower 20% of the Pennsylvania's overall number of school districts. And this has gone on for, oh, what, three decades, and it's getting worse, but everybody keeps doing what they're doing, and no one wants to talk about how we can change status quo instruction. We keep having the adult ed as is. We keep having the workplace stuff as is. One of our professional, or COABE, the Coalition on Adult Basic Education, prides themselves on being, in quotes, a pipeline to industry. <laughs> if we do not change, in their own words, the narrative, how are we going to improve adult literacy, community literacy, so adults can be participating members of their communities, that they could be community leaders, and that they can teach their own children? We're not getting it done. So I I love what you said here so far because, you know, again, as, as you mentioned, you know, the first step towards fixing a problem is first realizing that there is a problem. And, uh, you know, I think the numbers bear out that while we know, while we've proven that there's a problem, too many, too many, I'll say people, organizations, governments, whatever, uh, they haven't really accepted those numbers as being a problem, which is why it's persisted. Um, so from your professional opinion, with your dealings with education and dealing with educators and learners throughout your career, with all the research that you've done, if you had dependent on one issue that we need to fix first, what is the issue that we need to fix and focus on first? In my most humble opinion, from researching, talking with people, practicing, being a practitioner of it as well, we need to get away from standards and rubrics. Okay. Now, for, for anybody who's listening real quick that doesn't really know what a rubric is, share that definition real quick. A rubric is a preconceived set of assessments by which we evaluate adult learner proficiency, adult learning. It's generated by a group of experts, a panel, if you will, 
Pimentel, Susan Pimentel in 2013 comes out and she stated on page one of her publication that standards-based education needs to begin, of course, her words, with the standards. Okay? Now, that's a great sentiment, except that is the problem. Why do we, as perceived experts in the field, as a you know, degreed, licensed, certified adult educators, want to pigeonhole our learners into some preset notions of their life's biography, of their understanding, of what they've been through in life, of their culture, their language, their traditions. All of this, Earl, has come to bear on how they will engage in that class. So if we start coming at them from the standards, of course, we're shutting them out. One year ago, I attended a seminar, webinar, from the Barbara Bush Foundation, where it was shared that about a half a million people are no longer registered in adult education programs. A half a million are no longer registered. Why? Because when these learners of different cultures, like Dr. Ingram, uh, so eloquent like the culturally and linguistically diverse learners are not being met. Their needs are not being met. So why do they persist in the classroom when everything is basically foreign to them? It's not their life's biography, and they don't get it. So that there is the problem that we need to address. We need educators to be educators and not be have their hands tied by formal policy, by rubrics. Here, one of the things I know here in Pennsylvania is they give you 50 hours of instruction to have an adult learner improve one level, one academic level. You're looking at 50 hours as compared to 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. <laughs> that seems unrealistic, and although we have found ways to help address it, let's remove that barrier for funding, and let's allow the educators to understand their learners and provide, develop, deliver lesson plans that best address the learning needs and characteristics of their learners in the classroom. So, as you were talking there, I, I was really kind of thinking back over the past uh, couple years, you know, with COVID and how a lot of of education has moved because of the the pandemic had moved from you know the brick and mortar school to homeschooling, and and even as as kids returned to school, there was a lot of uh, hybrid education going on. You know, they would go to school a couple days a week and then they would uh, educate from home, you know, via laptops, things like that. And, you know, some of the statistics are kind of showing us that while, yes, some, some school systems are moving back to, are moving back to the traditional model of, of kids a hundred percent in person, there are quite a few school districts that are kind of embracing the, the idea that they can educate students from home. Um, 
so as this becomes a little bit more prominent and a little bit more socially acceptable, do you think that provides any kind of relief for this by allowing educators the ability to, you know, let's just say I'm a Native American learner, and but I live in a, a, an area where there's not a lot of Native Americans right now. Do you think that there's going to be an avenue going forward where that that learner can say, well, hey, you know, I'm going to sign up for this school on, on the Navajo Nation Reservation and, and get a more culturally influenced learning environment for myself. Do you think that's something that, that is coming and will, will help some of these numbers? We just finished up interviewing dozens of people. And one of the recurring themes is meet them where they are. That point that you're bringing up does exactly that. We meet them where they are. So uh, when we have learners of a specific cultures learning, there was one, I'm not going to mention her name just yet because nothing's published, but she made the very insightful argument that she came from a school where everyone was in quotes, like her. There was no difference of identity I shouldn't say that because we're all unique. I get it. But they were all culturally the same. She was able to open up. There was no defensiveness. She learned her math. She learned history, social studies, grammar, all of that stuff. Earl. And she was uniquely positioned now to be successful. And we're going to have her on in a, in a future podcast, by the way. And from her statements, it shows that her learning needs and characteristics were met in a group of learners just like her. Where there is no having to defense against another culture, another race, another ethnicity. Whatever the socio status is, economic status is, she was there comfortable and open to learn. So yes, it is important, but Earl, we can't stay there because why? Increasing diversity of in the United States and around the world, the increasing transient nature, transient nature of people. We need to be able to work with, learn with, and get along in communities with those who are different from us. And education and communities in the workplaces are wonderful, robust places where we can learn this. Remember, 21st century literacy skill is knowing and appreciating different cultures, perspectives, languages, and so forth. So we can start there and get people there. But the other thing is online, the digital divide has still not been addressed. There are people, and from the research we've done in these impoverished, vulnerable neighborhoods, we see that, yes, they have the smartphones. Yes, they have the tablets but they really do not make use of the internet in ways to improve their socioeconomic status and leisure activities. So there's still so much more that needs to be addressed. And I've seen lately where Congress has approved spending to help bring the internet into areas that need it. In the United States in 2022, there are many areas that their internet, shall we say, is very compromised. Just 
like going back into the days of like the early nineties, when we first started all that doll up stuff, their internet is about yeah. that good. And we need to improve that before this whole online thing could even be a good viable option to me in my, and please let me know if you agree or disagree, reach out to us. We would love to have the conversation because only through the hard conversations can we make progress? No, and, and I think you make some very valuable points there. And that's that's where, uh, you know, without going too far down that rabbit hole, uh, that's where I see as as more and more communities uh, talk about, you know, the, the topic of reparations. I think that's the, the key right there, right, is because it, it's going to be virtually impossible to unravel all of the other issues behind reparations. But if you start disproportionately reinvesting in underinvested uh, communities over history. And that's, that sounds like a mouthful to say yeah. right there, but uh, you know, the, the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is when you look at history for folks who don't know or aren't aware of the practice of redlining, you know, redlining was the, the government sanctioned uh, segregation, right? It, it, it redline different districts to to be lower poverty to to put uh, more people in in certain uh, of a certain demographic in a certain area and I'm putting it way on purpose because it wasn't always a black white thing sometimes it was Hispanic and if it was an all white area it was the poor whites versus the rich whites now yes if you look at a lot of communities it did fall out along racial lines but I promise you redlining still happened in mostly homogenous looking uh, areas. But the point is, because of that practice of redlining, a lot of the people who uh, you know made less money were kind of shuttled off to one section of town. That meant lower uh, income. That meant lower tax uh, funding. That meant lower investments in their schools, which meant their students, uh, the, the people who went there, and the teachers, the educators and the learners, the, the educators weren't paid as well. They had bigger classrooms. They had less uh, uh, resources available. So the learners uh, had more preoccupied educators with less resources to be able to teach them. And that meant that they didn't learn as well as kids across town who went to better funded schools. You know, and, and that started this, we talk about this cycle of right. poverty and the prison to uh, the school to prison pipeline. That's what started that, right? So when we talk about reparations, what Ramos talking there, if we can do that, fill in that infrastructure gap. Uh, reservations are a perfect example of that. You know, I've had the pleasure of being on several uh, reservations and that's all these folks are looking for is 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 a chance and, and help from the government that promised that they would help them. But you close that gap and you make this model a little bit more realistic and then we can start making some real dents in some of these numbers because the only reason why this digital divide hasn't been crossed is because it's still fairly new, right? educators are learning more and more every day how to better engage learners online. They were forced to over the past two years. Learners are getting more and more comfortable learning online. You know, so I, I don't think it's that far of a stretch within the next five to 10 years to see the vast majority of education happening online. Like, so, yeah. Oh, and now let's, you make wonderful points. So how can we address them? So here's the importance of adult literacy to help your child in school. 
One of the things that a parent can do to help address this gap in the meantime is talking and listening. Do you know that in a working class household, kids are only exposed to only about 2,500 to 3,000 words a day? In a more affluent household, they're exposed to 4,000 plus. Okay, so right there, this whole talking and listening thing, read with your kids. And again, adult literacy, that you know what these words are. You know the books. You can share with your child. You are the first teacher and most important teacher of your child, right? Talking and verbal language acquisition can never be underscored enough. We had a guest on, Earl, Lois Letchford. She made these points. Mm -hmm. and, and folks, if you didn't hear that one, go to our podcast list and find the one with Lois Letchford. Uh, what, Critical Thinking and Education, I think it was. Episode six, yeah. something like that. Uh, she was episode seven. seven. Episode seven. Lois talked about these things. And this is what you can do right now to address the issue of intergenerational poverty and low literacy need to point out signs, symbols, objects for your children. Get them acclimated to a world outside the home. All right. Another thing we can do is share books amongst families in the neighborhood, hold family, I'm sorry, neighborhood reading sessions. You know, an adult ha um, has a specific skill. Gather the kids in the local meeting, like park or where, town circle. And have and, and read a book together. Okay. The other thing, do not underestimate play. Music and art through playing are some of the best educational instruments you can have, especially parents. You play games with the kids. Okay, it accomplishes the kids to be physical, agile, and dexterous. Yeah, but it also helps them to problem solve, to think through things, to understand a larger picture as opposed to what they need to do. So characters and scenes, role play, play them. If a child wants to play out a movie scene, do it. It's, it doesn't cost you anything. It's in your home, and it's helping your children to improve their literacy and understanding. It improves their ability to learn. And this all takes positive steps to help you and your family to address low liberty, low li um, literacy, and thereby improving your socioeconomic status and upward social mobility and climb out of poverty. Then start, we can collectively address the proportion of families living in poverty. And Earl, I think to me that that would be a win. But that's what they can do right now in the home. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the other thing there is, and you kind of brushed up against it, but I just want to kind of really reinforce it there is, because this is the thing, you know, again, for listeners, you know, I, I do a little bit more in kind of the, the leadership and, and kind of business world. But, you know, the one thing I always stress to leaders is one of the most important things about being a leader is knowing when to be a follower as well. You know, you have to have good followership. And I think it's the same thing here uh, with this education learner cycle. And this isn't just for necessarily parents, but I think this is for educators as well. We're in a rapidly evolving world. We're in a rapidly technologically evolving world. It's okay to not know the latest piece of technology. It's okay to not know the latest piece of software. 
what's not okay is to sit back and think that just because you're the parent, just because you're the learner, that the student, that the child can't teach you how to use that. And I promise you, when you just like with followership, right? If you really want to unlock the pleasure of learning for a student, for your child, let them become the teacher on something. Let them show you how valuable they are. You know, you, you don't understand TikTok? Good. I don't either, right? I wish I had a kid that could teach me how to use TikTok, but I don't. But if you do, let them teach you. Let them help you become part of that. Um, you know, we, we had a discussion, my hometown, uh, my hometown's Facebook page, there was this discussion just going on about they're, they're switching away from uh, physical textbooks to using uh, PDF Chromebooks that they're going to send, that they send home. And some of the parents were kind of complaining about how difficult it was to use. And like, there was a bunch of kids going to like, hey, look, if you're having trouble with it, I can help. And they're like, ah, I don't. One person actually said, I don't need no whippersnapper telling me what to do. Like, and I'm sitting there like, who really uses whippersnapper anymore? But the point is, that person just missed out on a great opportunity to not only learn a valuable skill and increase their digital literacy, but they just shut down somebody who was willing to help them grow. And I think if we start looking at education and learning as something uh, circular versus linear, we're going to make a lot of progress. I'll agree completely. Um, all right. So going back, we started 22 years ago, right? We knew this. But then in 2013, we get standards slammed in our face. But Earl, like you're talking, let the child lead. If you're a parent, let the child lead you in some educational activities, whether it's, you know, role playing a movie or reading books together or playing a scene in a book, right? Or playing music together, um, anything like that. And then join other families. But here's the thing that we're doing. Other than looking at the rubrics and the standards and where low literacy parents don't, in quotes, using air quotes, don't see themselves as teachers, but they are. And here's how. <laughs> the parents are actually teaching their kids through role play, through everyday life. The kids are looking to you. Every day you have a chance to be a teacher. So master that. You know, see yourself as teacher. Uh, your, your activities in the home can go a far way to helping the child to be confident in who they are in school. A confident child goes a long way to higher academic achievement. And even if parents, you don't see yourself as teacher, look at yourself as a guide. Look at yourself as doing what the child wants to do and inserting some educational learning aspects within that. All right. We need to step away from the formal literacy center understanding to the fact that literacy happens in the home. First and foremost, Goodling said it. We need to involve the family and parents are first and foremost teachers of their children. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, I always like to share stories. So this will be kind of my my closing story here as we, we work to close things out here in just a couple minutes. But, uh, you know, there, there's a guy that, that I've loved 
watching through his career and all of his health struggles. And even now as, as a, a coach and an owner, and I know this is a guy whose uh, name you've heard a couple of times, but uh, uh, Mario Lemieux, you familiar with that Quite. guy? <laughs> the man. So as you, <laughs> as you were telling his story and, and I love Mario, like I love everything about him. And, but he always tells this story about where, where he learned the most about hockey and where his, uh, relationship really started and, and passion uh, was when his dad as, as a four-year-old um, uh, Mar- when Mario was four, his dad and a winner would go out and bring snow. He would line the hallway and he would bring snow into the hallway and pack it into ice and put up a chair for Mario to, to learn how to skate. And then he started slowly teaching him some of those skills. Um, and then, you know, obviously he got into more formal training and stuff but you know the the thing is is that's the memory that sticks with him these four five six-year-old memories of his dad taking the time to shovel snow inside the house build a makeshift rink in the the hallway and teach him how to skate give him some passion right and i think when you go back and you look at people who have had greatness who have had a lot of success they're they're not the people who came from the most wealthy families always. They're not the people who came from the most educated families. They're the people who came from the most supportive families. And, and I think that's kind of what Raymond and I both are kind of getting at here is, is yes, we, we need to hold uh, governments to a higher standard. We need to hold learning institutions to a higher standard. But it's like anything else in life. You have some control over it, and you can create these environments for yourself and there's people like us out there that are, are, are willing to help. So take some of that, you know, take some of that ownership of it and, and look for those opportunities because they exist to where you can take ownership of your educational journey, of your learning journey and, and have fun at it with your family. Earl, I completely agree. And that Mario Lemieux story is powerful because it showed a parent teaching his kid. They didn't look up. And folks, we say we the educators, but who are the most important educators? Adults in families and neighborhoods. Whether you have children or not, you still impact the lives of people through some sort of education. You may think it's insignificant, but I learned how to make um, ravioli, actual ravioli, with the making the dough and this and that. How? My mom and dad would include me at the table where they were making and rolling all this stuff out. I got to handle the dough and hands on. But I learned that. And that's something I never forgot. But what does that mean? It means that I was able to learn something. John Dewey says it best, you know, learning is in the doing. Lev Vygotsky in his zone of proximal development stated that learning is best accomplished when you have an authority or an expert guiding the learning of a novice. So parents, you have life experience. You are important educators. Our societies would be nothing without your role as an educator with other adults or with children. You need to embrace that and value yourself that you are an educator as well. And we invite you to even contact us. If you want to talk about this with a Seabree staff member, we're more than happy to take your call and schedule some time with you. 
Love it. Love it. Well, Raymo, we're coming up on time for this show. I think uh, I, I can see uh, a part two or, or something coming up here in the near future. This has been a great conversation, and, and thank you for mm-hmm. sharing uh, all of those great statistics and all of that great insight with us. Um, I'm going to let you go ahead and take this one home and close this out there, buddy. So what is your parting right. thoughts? Parting thoughts is, folks, tune in to our future because we will have people echoing these very sentiments in their practices, successful practices. But let's take it home. I want My parting thought is this. Never undervalue your life's experiences and that which you've learned through work, through community, through interacting in community groups or the neighborhood, through sports, any of that. Do not undervalue yourself. You are, you are important and you make major contributions to a healthy society, which is what Seabree is after. Reducing the proportion of, of poverty, improving people's self-awareness, and building towards social cohesion, Earl. If we can do that, we can improve not only, to me, communities, neighborhoods, but the United States, and let's look at the world. My, I'm not done. <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to end. Thank you folks for, uh, for listening and, and supporting the show. Make sure you're doing all those great things like, uh, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and most importantly, share the show, right? That That's how we're going to grow. Share the show, uh, and, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Those reviews help us elevate ourselves in the rankings and help us reach more people and make a bigger impact. So that's the role you can play in helping us out. Thank you very much, and uh, yeah, we look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.